I think probably. Let's start. Any prayer requests? Anybody? I have one. My aunt and uncle lost their home and all their belongings in the fires in California. So oh, no. for them. Where are they? Right now they're in a hotel. No, but I mean the mm-hmm. home. Uh, Santa Rosa. Wow. wow. Where what? That's as best as I know. Well, it's. Cool. Uh, We have good friends up there, and I called them two days, I think two days into the fire, and <laughs> John Galton was um, one of the heads of the Ignatius Institute at USF, very committed Catholic. He took on all the Jesuits when the Jesuits went far left wing in, in, at USF, and really, really good man, really good man. He and his, I called to see how they were doing. He and his wife left, and his wife's sister was was house-sitting when the fire started and she said that they called from the East Coast when they'd heard the news and asked if they should go back because Mary, John's wife, was really worried and the sister said, no, stay where you are and I said, can you see the fires? And she said, yeah, I can see them from here. (laughs) I think they were about 10 miles away and they're in Santa Rosa. Yeah, they they were allowed to go back to their house and they said they found two cooking pans and a Visions were casserole dish, and that was it. God, God, God. What are their names? Bob and Laurel. Bob and Laura? Laurel. Laurel. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, especially in the Mass, um, for the way in which you invite us to participate in your kingdom, to make it real here, um, to bear your cross, uh, to do what we can to make your kingdom present. Strengthen us to bear the cross you ask us to bear so that we can grow in love, um, to learn to put ourselves away, to get rid of the sins in us that keep us from living as you do. And we are glad to be together. Um, These are dark works and in so many ways prophetic. I mean, they really do show us things that we should pay attention to, to take care of. Um, Help us to take these things that we're learning and make them real in our own lives, whatever the cost. Um, Open our minds. Help us to be open to what we're seeing. Open our hearts um, to learn to feel as we should great truth that we took away from Dante and all of our works is how to order our loves to love things the right way um, and to have the humility um, to see that and make it real in what we do. Ask for a blessing on Bob and Laurel um, and all the people in the California area that's been affected by the fires. What a year the, the hurricanes and storms fires. Um, Everywhere around us people are having their homes destroyed. Somewhere in our work together we saw 
that this is not our home. We're not meant to be here. We are peregrine, is St. Augustine's word, peregrine, journeyers, pilgrims on a journey. If we ever get too settled here, there's something wrong because our love should be directed to you. Help us to take care of the things that we have here, knowing that they're passing, to not let them have a power over us that we shouldn't. Be with um, the people who've lost their homes. Help them to find a consolation to learn from their losses. Um, the words in the Mass are to give you thanks always and everywhere. It doesn't say what conditions. Um, to learn to be grateful, whatever goes on. Strengthen all of us to do that. I ask for a blessing on Christopher and Kayla and their struggles. Um, um, continue to be with them, to open their hearts and their minds, give them courage. More importantly, give them a spirit of lowliness, a humility, um, to help them grow into the love that you've called them to. Let that be for all of us here. We offer these prayers to you, Christ our Lord. couple of things. I'm going to read um, the opening from East Coker and not comment because I want, to, I want to try to leave as much time as we've got for O'Connor because this is pretty dark stuff and um, um, it, goes, it goes so much more directly to so much of what we've been doing that I want to be sure to, um, that we have a chance to talk about what's going on in all four of those stories. But let's, let's begin East Coker. I wanted to spend some time summing up Burton Norton, but I'm going to wait on that. I, I want to get us going. Um, oh, well, here, I'll come to it in a second. Let me do East Coker and then get on so we can get to O'Connor. Um, Eliot's Four Quartets, the second quartet, East Coker. Remember that um, this intersection between the time, the timeless and the time was the central image, the defining image. There are lots of critics who say that each one of the quartets has a major, one of the major four elements, air, earth, fire, and water, that it's a governing image of each of the quartets. Um, sometimes I think that gets a little bit pushed too much. If, if that's true, the, the governing element of the four elements that govern air, earth, fire, and water. The governing element in Burton Norton would be air. Here it would be earth, because dry south ashes would be water for sure. It becomes really clear then, and fire will be the governing image of um, little Gidding. So one of the governing images here will be land and, and the cyclical nature of it. And you'll hear echoes of ecclesiastic. There's a time for this, a time for this, a time for this. You know, that, that balanced sense of the cyclical, the rhythmic, that, that things come into being and they pass away. Okay? He's Coker. In my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field or a factory, 
or a bypass. Old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes, and ashes to the earth, which is already flesh, fur and feces, bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf. Houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living, for generation, and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered Paris woven with a silent motto. In my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the open field, leaving the deep lanes shuttered with branches, dark in the afternoon, where you lean against a bank while a van passes. And the deep lane insists on the direction into the village, and the electric heat hypnotized. In a warm haze, the sultry light is absorbed not refracted by gray stone. The dahlias sleep in the empty silence, wait for the early hour. I should have said this at the beginning, let me say this now. Um, I'm not sure if this is anecdotal or factual, but Mary Queen of Scots, when Queen Elizabeth executed her, had her executed, was reported as going to her death when she was, I think she was beheaded, hung to death, beheaded. Her last words were, in my end is my beginning. Now think about that because Eliot's going to be playing with both forms of that because the nature of this is cyclical. Remember the opening lines, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable, things keep coming into being and passing away. That's the major governing motif of this. But her words were, because she, she, was, ending, she was facing the end of her life, but as a devoted Catholic, those words are telling, in my end, because I'm going to die, in my end is my beginning. I mean, think of the courage, the faith of that woman to say that, just knowing that she's not going to be here the next minute. So he begins the poem, in my beginning is my end. The dahlias sleep in the empty silence, wait for the early owl. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the wheat pike and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. The association of man and woman in Don Singa, signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessarie conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which it betokeneth concorde, Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, or joined in circles, rustically solemn or in rustic laughter. Lifting heavy feet in clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn. Things keep coming back, going to the earth. Out of the earth comes new life. Keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing as in their living in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of the coupling of man and woman and that of beasts, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence, out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here, or there, or elsewhere, in my beginning.
Okay, we'll pick it up. A couple of things before we start. Um, I, I'm going to recommend two books tonight. For those of you, I, I, I know that some of you have talked about um, wanting more notes. I, I don't have time to do them. Um, but um, a couple of suggestions. Thomas Howard has written a book called, a book called Dove Descending on the Four Quartets. The, my general experience of critical reading in academia is that it tends to be too pedantic, far too pedantic, far too heady. Howard has written this book on the four quartets, which is anecdotal. It's a rare, rare book. It, 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 he's, it's a little bit like talking with somebody over coffee at lunch or something. It's very anecdotal, um, familiar, but he does a, a, a wonderful job of going through each of the four quartets. So he opens them up, but it's not that dry, academic, analytical approach to a poem. There's an element of that because he's got he's to deal with some tough things in this poem. But he does as good a job as uncovering those intellectual difficulties that are buried in the poem, and they're all theological, as anybody. So if you're interested in pursuing the four quartets, because Eliot's is one of the major voices of our time, I would just recommend this book. It's called The Dove Descending by Thomas Howard. It's at Ignatius Press. It's a Catholic press. It's really well done. It's really well done. And the other book that I'd recommend is this one. Um, and I, I wish we had time because I'd love to read passages from it, but it's Flanner O'Connor's collection of essays on writing. It's called Mystery and Manner. And once again, it's very anecdotal. Um, she speaks in, a, in an ordinary southern idiom um, she's very well educated, very well read. She kept a text of St. Thomas by her bedside. There's some comic anecdotes of her. She said she used to read Thomas a lot. And before she would, you know St. Thomas's dialectical method. He'd go, um, whether something is so or not. And then he would give a number of propositions. This is so, this is those, this is so, this is so. And then he'd go, on the contrary. Because what he did was take various positions that seemed to be the truth and then would go on the contrary, and then he'd give the principle, and once that principle is out, he had a means for answering every one of those propositions. So it's a little bit, I'm, I'm very serious about this too, it's a little bit like reading a circle. Very few people are able to go to principles. I'm not kidding, most people argue on the surface. He doesn't make an argument without going to a principle every single time. So he's always taking you to the kernel of something having to do with being as it relates to our surface experience of things. And so once he s says on the contrary and then lays out the principle, he'll, he'll, give, he'll respond to the opening propositions and show what was wrong with them. Flannery O'Connor used to read them every night and she said she reached a point where when she was done reading, she went to turn off the light. She'd go, now should I turn off the light or should I not? <laughs> should I turn off the light or should I not? <laughs> She loved St. Thomas, um, was a great read. St. Thomas is infused in her work. You wouldn't know it, because there's nothing academic about her. She's, you, well, you've read her stories. She's, a, she's a, um, a fiction writer. But underneath her fiction is this profound sense of orthodoxy, of truth and... Maybe that's why I thought of Thomas. Thomas, yes. When yes. I read her stuff. Yep, yep, yep. That's why. Oh. You saw. I saw you it. You did see. So Flannery O'Connor, Mystery Manners. It's a wonderful collection. Um, 
Um, I want to do two things before we start on O'Connor, and this actually goes to this. I want to just very quickly remind everybody of some of the things we saw in Hemingway, and then I want to just, um, I'm sorry that um, um, Fred and Francis aren't here because I know he wanted to do uh, E.B. White's Once More to the Lake, we didn't, but. This is from her essay called The Grotesque in Southern Fiction. And she says, um, since the 18th century, the popular spirit of each succeeding age has tended more and more to view that the ills and mysteries of life will eventually fall before the scientific advances of man, a belief that is still going strong, even though this is the first generation to face total extinction because of these advances. Everybody looks increasingly to science, even though scientific discoveries have brought us to the edge of annihilation. If the novelist is in tune with the spirit, if he believes that actions are predetermined by psychic makeup, that's Freud, whose belief is rest, rest on determinisms. If the novelist is in tune with the spirit, if he believes that actions are predetermined by psychic makeup or the economic situation or some other determinal factor, that's Marx, the Marxist economic determinism, then he will be concerned above all with an accurate reproduction of the things that most immediately concern man, with the natural forces that he feels controls his destiny. In the modern world, for the modern novelist, El, El, Hemingway grew up with it, so did actually Flannery O'Connor Faulkner. They understood that to be what the scientific world called and the literary world called naturalism. When Hemingway, when Joyce, when all the major writers were writing, they, they knew that they were writing under the influence of naturalism, that this is all there is. The supernatural graces have no place there. They don't exist for those writers. They will be concerned above all with an accurate reproduction of the things that most immediately concern man, with the natural forces that he feels controls his destiny. That's the modern mind. We've, that's the world we've been in. I'm hoping everybody sees that with wealthy, particularly with Hemingway, what we read last week. Such a writer may produce a great nat tragic naturalism, for by his responsibility to the things he sees, he may transcend the limitations of his narrow vision. Tragic naturalism. Um, this is a, from a passage two pages later. In, in which she defines the grotesque comedy. I don't want to come to that in a minute, but I want to just read this to lay this out so I can put this book away. Thomas Mann has said that the grotesque is the true anti-bourgeois style. But I believe that in this country, the general reader has managed to connect the grotesque with the sentimental, for whatever he speaks, whenever he speaks of it favorably, he seems to associate it with the writer's compassion. It's considered an absolute necessity these days for writers to have compassion. Compassion is a word that sounds good in anybody's mouth and which no book jacket can do without. It's a quality which no one can put his finger on in any exact critical sense, so it's always safe for anybody to use. I mean, you know that word. It's bandied about today like it's never been. If you're not compassionate, there's something wrong with you. Usually, I think what's meant by it is that the writer excuses all human weakness because human weakness is human. The kind of hazy compassion demanded of the writer now makes it difficult for him to be anti-anything. You know that that's true, particularly in a politically correct world, such as ours. You cannot write anything truthfully without being condemned 
for being bigoted or prejudiced or the kind of hazy compassion demanded of the writer now makes it difficult for him to be anti-anything. Certainly, when the grotesque is used in a legitimate way, here's the point of this, the intellectual and moral judgments implicit in it will have an ascendancy over feeling. She wants to get past the tendency to, um, to let the compassion of somebody make feeling more dominant than seeing or understanding. So by grotesque, she does not mean being sentimental. Quite the contrary, she means being tough-minded about things. That, and Marcy used interesting. I mean, she picked out something here that, that, the the good grotesque. The writer writing in the grotesque always has something to reveal about a truth to something. It's important for us to see, not just feel something. And we'll get to that in the in the four um, stories. Last week, with Hemingway, we saw one of the great writers of the 20th century um, doing basically what O'Connor is describing him doing, that he's taking a very honest look at man as he's situated in a naturalistic, a world bound by naturalistic conceptions, that this is what nature is. And we saw that the highest, the highest ideal for a man living in that situation for Hemingway is dignity, that a man hold his own. Hemingway used the phrase grace under fire. Now I want to say that because it's really important to, to hear that because for Hemingway he meant a man having the dignity to stand up when he had to deal with something difficult, like Macomber. Um, what was the other one? Let's see. Hills Like White Elephant. What was the third one I'm missing? Clean Well Lighter Place. Huh? Clean Well Yeah, Clean Well Lighter Place. Remember the deaf man had dignity when he was drinking, and when the old bartender, le the old waiter left, he was described as walking away with dignity, just like the man with, uh, who was deaf. So there's the sense of human dignity that, that man can realize in himself under impossible circumstances. Now, it's really important to to see that because it's really important to see that for Hemingway when he said grace under fire he did not mean supernatural grace as we understand it because supernatural grace for us is Christ on a cross it's Dante fainting because for Dante he knew that, that to try to always live up to this great nobility that man's capable of very often comes at a, at a, at a horrible cost of one's pride that unless a man breaks his pride, unless he comes to a point of view, man and woman, that he won't realize Christ. But somehow we've got to die. So it means for us, very often, suffering humiliating circumstances. Circumstances that, for Hemingway, would be insupportable. I mean, they would be seen as a defeat. That's why when Faulkner, um, late, late in their lives, when Faulkner read The Old Man and the Sea, which I think, I think is Hemingway's greatest. It's a very short book. It's about an old man who goes to sea and catches this. I think it's a marlin fish or something. And he struggles mightily to, to bring this fish in and does, but it finally gets eaten up by sharks. And when he comes home, he has nothing. He, so he brings home nothing. But there's a, a, it's more than dignity. that, that There's a fortitude and a courage and a humility that he didn't come back and he didn't have anything to show for his efforts. I think that's why Hemingway said Faulkner finally discovered God. That was his comment on the book. 
So in Hemingway's world, we see a, a, what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. We see a modern world, what happens to modern man when God's taken out of the picture. And it's a pretty dark world. We saw it in Eudora Welty, we saw it in Hemingway. We're going to see it now in Flannery O'Connor. Um, E.B. White, I want to just look at one thing in this because I, I don't want to take time, but I don't want to, I don't want this, this dragging behind us. Can you pull out once more to the leg? I only want to go through this for one thing. To me, it's a beautifully written story. It's a, it's a personal account of E.B. White's reaching a point in, in his life as a father when he took his son to the lake that he'd gone to with his father when he was a boy. And it, you know the story if you've all read it <clears throat> over and over and over again. He, he, he's made aware of how much things have not changed. He, he's surprised to see that all the same things that he experienced as a boy are still present. There's a couple of changes. Instead of the three tracks on the road from a wagon or a, you know, a drawn wagon, I guess, there are the four tracks for the wheels of a car and a couple of other soda pop, one of them was changed. The, the most grating change, as I recall, was the motorboat engine. And that grated on him. And it, it's, it's interesting because in his mind, that's clearly an image of the way in which, in, in which technology has imposed itself on that natural world. That it would have been better to have, been, to have left things as they were, as a, as a natural world, to learn to get along without technology. But again and again and again, he keeps being reminded. When his son sneaks off in the morning, he was reminded the way he used to sneak off. When his son fishes, he, and the dragonfly is on the edge of the pole, he, you know, all those things. And then at the end of the story, he comes to that point after the storm, when the, the typical clown ran out with an umbrella, and another guy ran out with soap. I mean, all the same things. And he has this wonderful line. Um, that line, world with that end, pattern, oh yeah, um, he says it a number, in the middle of page three, summertime, oh summertime, pattern of life indelible, the faded proof lake, the fade proof lake, the woods unshatterable, the pasture of the sweet fern, and the juniper forever and ever, summer without end, and this was the background, and he goes on, cyclical, going on and on and on about all these things that never change. Um, until the end when he watches his son after the storm put on his wet gray bathing suit and he's reminded, like I'm sure all of us have had that experience when we've got a wet suit and we put it on, it, it freezes our bottom and you know, we don't want to put it on. And he ends it saying, languidly and with no thought of going in, I watched him, his hard little body, skinny and bare, saw him wince slightly as he pulled up around his vitals the small, soggy, icy garment. As he buckled the swollen belt, suddenly my groin felt the chill of death. That's an emphatic ending. The last word of the story is death. So it's like he was um, jolted out of this somnolent sense that things go on eternally without end when he knows that they don't. Um, so it's a lovely reminder of how death is with us, even if we don't always see it. 
But that's not the reason for, for choosing. Go back to the um, very bottom of page one. <coughs> I was right about the tar. It led to within a mile of the shore, but when I got back there with my boy and we settled into a camp near a farmhouse and into the kind of summertime I had known, I could tell it was going to be pretty much the same as it had been before. I knew it, lying in bed for the first morning, smelling the bedroom, and hearing the boys sneak quietly out and go off along the shore in a boat. I began to sustain the illusion that he was I, and therefore by simple transposition, that I was my father. This sensation persisted, kept cropping up all the time we were there. It was not an entirely new feeling, but in this setting it grew much stronger. I seemed to be living a dual existence. I would be in the middle of some simple act. I would be picking up a bait box or laying down a table fork, or I would be saying something and suddenly it would be not I, but my father who was saying the words or making the gesture. It gave me a creepy sensation. And I just want to pause on this for a second because it seems to me that that sentence can get lost in all of the recollections of everything being the same and the romance that he feels about it. Does anybody have a thought about that? What's going on in that moment? Is it, is it more common than most of us would think? You know, it's hard to believe all of you haven't had similar experiences. I don't know, have you, yes or no, or? Yes, very much so. Anybody? We've not gone over this in this, we didn't go over this, right? Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to share something here? Well, I find myself saying things I thought I would never say that my mother said to me as a child. <laughs> I go, oh, I'm turning on my mother. <laughs> one, of the, one of the guys in the morning class said that. His wife was saying, you're sounding more and more like your mom. The older you get. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's a good thing. But <laughs> Let me give you my experience of it. Why? And, and why this is important. It's not my personal experience because it goes to Dante. And, in a minute, I, if it's not clear, I hope it will be, but um, I remember the, f I think I'd already read this essay when it happened, but maybe I hadn't and read the essay and looked back on this experience, but I'll, I'll remember, I, I will never forget this experience. Susanna and I had been married for over a year. We had Amy, I don't know how old she was, a little, maybe a year, a little bit older, and I had been teaching Six tennis. Nine hmm? Six, nine months. Six, nine months. I would have put it older, but let me give you a reason. Somewhere, somewhere nine months a year, somewhere in there. Um, I'd been teaching tennis and would come home after a day of tennis daily and go in and take a shower. And Amy always used to come into the shower with me. And whenever, you know when parents get home, the children are usually glad to see you. And, and she would always run up and clasp my knees and, you know, and say hello. And it, would be, it was a really good time. It was a wonderful time to look forward to at that moment. I would take I would take Amy to the shower. We'd take a shower, and I'd bathe her. And she would always sit on the think sit on the pan. And she would she would do what children do when the water dribbles down your lips. She would trill it, you know, and coo make cooing sounds. And it was a cheer. It was like it was like having a bird in the shower with you. I mean, she would just sing. It was like a melody. Sounds were coming out of her. One day I came home. Amy was sick. I wasn't prepared for that moment. I, I don't think we had a moment like that before. So. It, caught me off guard. So she didn't greet me at the door the way she usually does. I took her into the shower and she sat on the pan of the shower. We were in a 
old cottage. I mean, we were pretty poor then, and we always lived pretty close to the bone until recently. But um, she sat in the shower pan, and she was quiet. There was no cooing, no trilling. Her head was down. <laughs> My heart broke. I just, well, it really did. I mean, I just, it was so funny because I was used to, you know, her being cheerful and glad and here. And in that moment, something happened that has not happened since and had not happened before. In that moment, I became my mother. My mom and I did not get along at, at all, at all, at all um, in later years. And um, in that moment, I was my mom, completely my mother. And the child that I was looking at was me. That was a real experience. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, there's not a question in my, mar that in my mind that what happened was I entered into the suffering that she entered in as a mother suffering for her children. The sorrow that a mother feels when you know, they nurse and do all the things that mothers do. And that was a powerful moment for me. I mean, it, it, it sort of broke a wall. I mean, that you could identify with your mother and the suffering that your parents go through. and um, so. Here's the reason, does this remind you of anything in Dante in the Paradiso? White calls it a transposition. Probably something there in Mary's suffering, for sure. I was thinking of the, the indwelling, the perichoresis. You remember when Dante goes up to Paradiso? Every time he's about to say something, Beatrice already knows what he's going to say. Because she's in him, and he's in him. We talked about this, the indwelling. Remember, the image behind this is the Trinity. Our God, our God is one God, interdwelling of persons. This is, I didn't, I forgot it again. I keep promising to bring this quote from St. Thomas. There's this passage where Thomas says of the Trinity that the three is no greater than one in the Trinity. Wrap your mind around that mystery. Three is no greater than one. It's the only time. Because it's one God. Three per God conceives of himself. If he does, it has to be a person. can't be a thing. And the love that he shares with that conception of himself, his son, the love that he shares is the spirit. So in our God which is very different from the Islamic God or the Judaic God, the Judaic and Islamic God is isolated. It, I mean, it, it, what it's, if, we're, if we're made in his image, then it should be natural for us to be isolated. If our God is a Trinitarian God and the love is reciprocal and complete, there's nothing they lack in each other. They don't need anything. They're, each one is complete in his own love. We were, we were created to love and be loved. It's impossible for us to be who we are without entering into a union with another, either God or another person, yeah? I mean, the whole call of our faith is to become one with each other, one flesh. So when he says um, that he felt a double, what was that? Living a dual existence. Living, a, yeah. I seem to be living a dual existence, that he was, he... For me, even, I, I, don't, I, I, I doubt that he has a sense of the Trinity that I have, but he's as close to an experience of the Trinity that I know of in secular literature. The only other, if you've read Wuthering Heights, and if you, you know that there's that moment when Catherine says to Nellie, I think the nurse, I think it was Nellie, 
She said, Nellie, I am Heathcliff. Those are, the first time I read those words, they practically knocked me off my, I am Heathcliff. He's more myself than I am. You know, that this experience of the indwelling, of being one with another, is what it will be like in heaven. We're not Indian. We're not Buddhist. It's all not going to merge. The great mystery of our faith is that each one of us will continue to be the individuals God made us to be, but we will be absolutely in union with everybody else. Absolutely. One with another. So I love this passage. It just, it seems to me that it's, it's really a, a wonderful image of, indwell, of the perichoresis, the perichoresis, what the church fathers called it, this indwelling dance that we're one with another. Um, Okay. Is there any connection with that? And the child is the father of the man? That's weird. Do you want to, do you want to say? Because I'm not sure everybody knows what you're talking about. Say, I, and I can't remember where it's from. It's Wordsworth. Is it? Yeah. It's, it's, his, it's his forenote to um, intimations of the intimations of immortality. That when we're born into this world, we have intimations of coming from God and the child is the father of the man. Wow. That's a, isn't that a different thing? Because what he's saying is that whoever you are as a child, you're going to become that. The, the child is the father of man. You will, you will know who you are meant to be by looking at your childhood. It's that way of... The, the whole thrust of intimations owed, it's a, one of the great problems for Wordsworth is what happens in those experiences you have in childhood that are full of joy as you get older? And his answer was memory, that the only way to recover them is memory. He didn't have a belief you know, in, the, in the crucifixion or the trinity. Or, um, so when he says the child is the father of the man, I think he really means that the experiences that we have in childhood are far more important than we know because they help shape what we're going to become. It's the beginning of the romantic movement, it's, and it's, you can say it's almost the beginning of the romanticizing of the modern child. The, 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 the modern psychologists make almost too much of the child, because maybe not too much, but they know that whatever goes on there is going to be determinative. I think this is a little bit different. I'm not sure that it's possible. I, to me, I, I think it can happen anytime. It seems to me it's more likely to happen in maturity as you grow older and you suffer more. You enter into, you can more easily identify with other people um, as we get older, generally speaking, I'd say. Okay, are you ready for grotesque comedy? Okay. Take a look at the narrative point of view, just very, very briefly. These are the most common point of view approaches that novelists take to telling stories. And I think you probably experienced all of them, maybe some more than others, but whether you knew it or not, this is what was going on. 
these are basic. The first one is first person. First person narrative is a story told from a character in the story. It's a first person. So for example, Huckleberry Finn, I'm assuming most of you have read that, Huckleberry Finn will tell his story. He's, a char he's telling a story about an event that happened in his life when he and Jim took the raft and fled. Um, Charles Dickens, Great Expectations. If you've read Great Expectations, you know that Pip tells the story from his childhood. That to me is one of the most extraordinary stories I believe ever written. And, and then late in his life he discovers that all the money and wealth that was given to him was actually given to him by the convict whom he met and saved when he was a little boy. Um, it's a wonderful story. You, you can supply your own examples. What are some other examples? The, some of them I haven't read. Like, what's the one that all teenagers are supposed to read, which to me is a big mistake, but what's the one? What is it, though? Is it Catcher in the Rye? Is that the one? The really sentimental, the dark, the, the one with all the angst or whatever. That all teachers feel compelled to teach that because of teenage angst or something. I don't know. But. Huh? God, it's been so. Is that right? Yeah. That would be a good example. She is. is, is she does. She does. She does. She does tell it. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. Yeah, first person. I haven't read She wrote one more. Harper Lee. Yeah, she wrote one more. Eighty years later. Yeah. Omniscient point of view is a story told from the point of view of somebody completely outside the story who's like a god, who can describe everything that's going on, except generally speaking, it's, it's not customary for a, a story that unfolds with a omniscient point of view to get deeply inside a character the way Faulkner does say with Benji or um, Quentin. Because from an omniscient point of view, one of the advantages to taking that position is that you can present a whole world. It's a, panoramic view you're giving of things because you're outside of it. So it's usually a larger social scene that is the subject of, of, of somebody using that perspective. <coughs> Charles Dickens, most of his novels were written from that perspective. Is it awesome? Hmm? Is it awesome? Mm -mm. The next one, third person limited. Oh, by the way, can you see, can you, can you understand the diagram? Usually in those, there's, so in the first person, the narrator is inside the circle, right? Because you're, that's, the, that's one of the characters, and we're getting that from a narrator telling the story about himself and everybody else, like Huck Finn or Pip. In Omniscient, you can see that the reader, the R, gets the story from the point of view of a narrator who's omniscient, standing outside the whole story, right? In third person, limited, the narrator stands outside the story, but it tends to focus on one of the stories, so it limits it to that person's point of view. Jane Austen's stories are written in third-person limited. What's the advantage to that? If you think about a story like, a novel like Pride and Prejudice, say, any, any one of Jane Austen's novels would do, the, or the mature ones, Pride and Prejudice, the narrator tells the story generally loosely from Elizabeth's point of view. That's not always true. There's an omniscient quality to it, but generally she, she presents things with Elizabeth in mind. She's the central figure. Because 
it's crucial to Austin that we identify so completely with her that we get caught up in her world and are subject to the same prejudices and blindnesses that she does. So when the turn comes, we're surprised by it. That is, she wants us to feel the same effect that Elizabeth feels so that we can be helped to make changes like that. So at the heart of the third person generally is the peripatia, a turn. You all see that? If it's a limited point of view, then we tend to get things the way they do, so there's a lot we don't see. And when the change comes, then we go, aha, now I see. So it increases the dramatic effect to use that. Is all that clear? Is that, yes? Central intelligence is um, somebody who stands within the world of the characters who makes available um, something that between themselves they couldn't know because they're separate characters. So it's called conceals. It, it allows us to get into all the characters' minds and, um, but not limiting it to one point of view. So we get a, a, we get a broader view of things the way we would with an omniscient narrator. Stream of consciousness, you know, because we just did this with Faulkner and Sound of the Fury. We're actually inside. The, when, when you go online, I went online to look at some of these things. If you go online to some of the uh, study guides on Faulkner, they keep saying Benji narrates his story. Benji's the narrator. Benji's not a narrator. He's incapable of narrating that. He can't tell that story. He doesn't have the language. We're inside Benji's mind. It's being narrated to us. So in some sense, it's almost like an omniscient point of view, but one that's entered so completely and that we're limited to what that person sees. Is that clear? Because there's lots Benji can't see or understand. So it's not an omniscient point of view. It's, it's limited to whatever that character is. So we got stream of consciousness for Benji, stream of consciousness for Quentin, stream of consciousness for Jason. Interestingly, the, the great writers who employed this technique, I think the really great ones, Joyce is the one who really opened the door in this. They knew that what they were doing was using a mode that's peculiar to lyric because it's in the lyric poem that we enter into the inner aspects of a person. Not the way it is here when it's dramatized in Sound and Fury, but the lyric is almost always inside the poet's interior. Like Robert Frost's poem, we're inside reflecting on stopping by woods, mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever it happens to be. It, in lyric, some people describe the lyric as something overheard. We happen to overhear a poet thinking to himself, as if we could get in his mind. That's a lyric mode. The major, major innovation in the 20th century was for novelists, narrators, who always tell stories about somebody, to get into a lyric mode so, so that an entire story would be told from that perspective. James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist was the first major breakthrough in that regard. And then Faulkner learned from him and Faulkner put it to work here. Okay. Now those are points of view. One of the, I hope one of the interesting things you'll see here is that, is that so often, we tend to see things one-dimensionally. You know I've harped on this, that 
that one of the effects of the fall is that we tend to objectify other people, to see other people as objects, things. Love calls us to get past that, to enter in so that we're one with a person. Novels have always helped us to do that because they help us enter the interior of a person forever, always. Homer, Virgil, Dante, Jane Austen, Dostoevsky, it doesn't matter. One of the interesting things I think we see when we put all of this together is how many different ways we can see things without maybe being aware that we are, that we can stand outside and see things omniscient, like God. We can enter into the mind of another character, see and feel what that person sees. We can do it in a way that allows us to do that with several characters. So if you look at all these points of view, the, the, the various ways in which writers can tell a story, it makes it possible to see how amazing our powers of understanding are. That we, we have these various ways of seeing into a story. It's not just one way. When you narrate a story, you're not just going, this happened, this happened, this happened. Very often when you're telling a story about this happened, this happened. We know that something special happened to this person. We get into the interior of that person and we find out there's an entirely different perspective on that story we've been reading. And we've been seeing that all along. So. It's truly amazing the, the kind of knowledge that literature gives us, the, the, the various ways it helps us to see and become a part of another person. Um, so, okay, grotesque comedy. Um, here's what I'd like to do very quickly. I'm, I'm going to just summarize each of the stories and then I'd like to to go to the end of each one of them and put some questions to you guys to see what you make of them, okay? Now remember, um, the, the term grotesque comedy really goes back to Dante. Here's the genre wheel. We've been reading lyrics all along several times, so I know this will be a review for some of you. Remember, here's the fourth genre, and it's important always to know that whatever work of art we're dealing with, it's a part of a whole. And it's just not a part of its own genre, epics being with epics, it's epics being with lyrics and plays. It's a part of a larger tradition with different ways of looking at things. Lyric poetry, I mean, we've been reading Elliot, you know, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Wind Hover, Schnackenberg's Supernatural Love, the little four-year-old girl who pricks herself, you know, that in lyric we're always taken into the interior of an action somewhere to feel things differently. The, the topos, the subject of the lyric is always the garden. It's where everything begins. And the stages of the lyric are anticipation, consummation, lamentation. We look forward to Fulfilling our love, the love is consummated, we lose it and we grieve in death. So the lyric covers every possible experience we can have. Every possible experience from longing for something to losing it. And it's generally from the interior. The loss of the garden 
takes us into the tragic world. In tragedy, we always enter into the suffering of an individual. Tragedy was always about the burdens of an individual, how something isolates him from the rest of the world. The tragic hero is always isolated. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. The tragic hero always has to bear some darkness. He gets isolated. Um, he has to face things other people don't face. The paradigm for that is Achilles. He has to make choices other people don't. And that fact isolates him. It, it helps him enter a darkness in which he has to look at things other people don't see. Um, from tragedy in, in drama, we move to a comic world. Comedy is always more communal. In comedy, there's always help. Something happens in a comic world to take the person out of isolation. Something funny is going on. Um, um, comedy is usually a, a, um, a, wor a world of endurance and hope. Louise Cowens, who was my teacher at UD, used to, used to describe the comic paradigm as missing the bus, running after the bus and tripping and scraping your knees while the bus goes off. And then you have to endure and you have to hope. Um, slipping on the banana. I mean, it's those, you know, it, it shows us the foolishness of ourselves that we can't always be as great as we want to be. That's the tragic world. The comic world is humbling. We have to come down with other people to be a part of others. The epic world is the world of the battle, the great epic battle to refound, to recover the garden. Every epic we've read had the founding, right? They had to uncover some disorder. Something was tearing the people apart. And it led to this great battle. Nobody understood the terms of it. But the poet did, that there was some issue too deep. And he, the poet was the one who saw it. And the effort to overcome that disorder led to a new identity for a people, a new beginning, a new sense of itself. And I've said from the beginning, Iliad, the Odyssey, the Divine Comic, the Aeneid, Moby Dick, all, all those works are on the verge of some awful calamity and everyone is taking us to a new order. Dante is, is, is the, you can say it's the beginning of modernity and the loss of the Christian Middle Ages. I mean, it's a new, it's a Christian way of looking at the world. And remember, Dante took the whole pagan past. It's all with him. Virgil is his guide. That whole pagan past is assimilated in that work and we're in the new world. Now, grotesque comedy, remember in comedy, if we break this down for a second, Oops, sorry, here. If this is comedy, remember that Dami, da, sorry, Dante's Divine Comedy was the paradigm. It was called the Divine Comedy. And there were three stages, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. And we can say that there are three different kinds of comedy. And remember, for Dante, there is no tragedy. The Christian God wiped that out. The pag for the pagans there were, because for the pagan there's nothing but death. That's a tragic worldview. Um, when we did the Winter's Tale, I remember making that point. Shakespeare's Winter's Tale is the first time Shakespeare in his life took a tragic story and ended it with a, com a comic resolution. That's why we call it a romance, not, not a comedy. It's not funny like the earlier ones. It's, it involves a lot of suffering. It has an element of tragedy in it, but it leads to Leontes and Hermione's reconciliation. Remember, after 
16 years of being separated. In, in comedy, there are three stages. Inferno, infernal comedy, purgatorial comedy, and paradisal comedy. We can say that Moby Dick is purgatorial comedy. Ahab's story is tragic. It's a tragic story. But it's absorbed, it's assimilated into um, Ishmael's mind. So it, what happens with Ahab becomes part of a larger comic vision, the way Ishmael said. He's bringing back a message to us. He's showing us something we, we want to learn to see and change. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to be hurt. We're all going to be wounded. The answer can't be to do what Ahab did. He's, bring, he's Jonah coming back. And what he makes clear is that there's this extraordinary goodness everywhere in the universe. It can make us laugh. It can make us grateful. Um, it, it helps us to turn away from that darkness. So there's Infernal Comedy, Purgatorial, Movie Dick's Purgatorial. I say Sound of the Fury is Purgatorial Comedy. It ends with Dilsey. All that suffering is taken up into a Christian worldview. Paradisal Comedy, it's rare. It's rare. In Dante, you've got the Paradisal. I would say... Winter's Tale is paradisal comedy. It's a glimpse of the forgiveness Christ promises man in heaven. That's what paradisal comedy is. That people will be unified in this um, bliss of the beatitude, you know, or the be sorry, the beatific vision with all the beatitudes. So the, the, the works that we're looking at, wait one sec, the, work, the works that we're looking at all belong to infernal comedy. It's, it's grotesque comedy. There's, each one of the stories has to do with this meeting between good and evil. In each one of these stories, grace is offered a person, and the, the central question of that story is whether that person accepts the grace or not. And that's the question that I want to look at with you guys, but it's that, it's that meeting place between grace and evil, and, and it's infernal because there's something going on in the story that makes it clear that somebody's on the verge of going to hell, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, so it's infernal. It, it has the possibility of damnation, but remember, all comedy looks, implies Dante's end, paradise. The infernal, take, the infernal part of the trip for Dante has as its end paradise. And it's clear some people refuse to go on. They refuse the offering. And that's why they're there. Okay. Mark's. Yeah, I think I might miss something. Um, you're talking about the different portions of comedy, and you mentioned there's some epics. So are you, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about something different that I may have missed. Because you, you're talking about Moby Dick, which is an epic, and you're talking about it, oh no, it's a comedy. Well, or it's, it's so I, I'm, something here I'm missing. Yeah, just, yeah, I mean, you're, that's a subtler question. And I was trying to be simple. To, um, we distinguish the genres for obvious reasons, because there's fundamental differences between them. But since they're all works of literature, they all have, they share something with each other. There will be there will be lyric moments in an epic, when when there will be times when we go into Achilles' mind or Odysseus's, or mm -hmm. and all epics will be will lean towards being comic or tragic. 
The Iliad is tragic in character. The, the Odysseus is, the Odyssey is comic in character, even though they're epics. Um, and some dramas can have an epic quality to it. Here, here's, I mean, here's, here, to throw, to really throw this off, T.S. Eliot was so upset by the romantic tradition and the egotism behind the poets always making themselves the center of everything, that he tried to get the, the um, poet out of the lyric. If you look at T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, that's like an epic poem. It's, it's only, I mean, it's not, it's not as long as, I think any one of the four quartets, it's probably as long as one of them, but it's epic in nature. The scope of it is so broad. So we distinguish these for real reasons. There are real distinctions between them, but because they're a part of the same genre nature, they share qualities with each other always. You can go inside of a Shakespeare play, let's see, Othello, Hamlet. You know that in Hamlet, because we read that, there are moments when we go into Hamlet's mind. So for a moment, we're in a lyric mode. We're inside his, his inner being. Um, they will always, and catch this, I don't want to go there. That's what my book is about. Um, oh, go there. Go no, there. I'm not going to go there. Go there. No, go I'm there. not going to go there. Um, if, if the Trinity's behind all of this, indwelling goes on everywhere. So even if we make distinctions between these individual kinds of genres, they're real, there's always going to be an indwelling, a borrowing from one to another, always, because they're interrelated. Um, okay, let me just quickly, the heart of the part. I'm going to just summarize each story very quickly, and then I want to read the endings to see what you guys make of them. Heart of the Park is a story about Enoch um, Emery waking up in the morning feeling that something special is going to happen to him. And he sets off for the park to do what he does every morning. Um, he goes to this diner place and then goes and looks at the... Uh, I can't remember the order. I think he may watch the woman swimming first. I can't remember, yeah, but first. Um, he does. He go there first. Yeah, he, he goes and watches this woman who is immodest. I mean, she she's modern. She has a slit in her bathing suit, and she she seems to be completely innocent of the fact that what she's doing may be seductive to other men, just because of the fact she's a woman. And he watches her, and then plans to go on to this diner and to go see the. Um, animals before he goes to the museum. But this particular day, he's greeted by um, a man, Hazel Weaver, who wants to get in touch with him. By the way, this story is a part of um, Father Connor's novel, The Violent Bared Away. If I remember correctly, it's been so, The Violent Bared Away. She took it and developed it into a short story, but the germ of it is there. And what happens with um, Hazel Weaver looking for this couple becomes a little bit clearer there. It's not clear here. He's just looking for this couple because he wants to get an address. And Enoch tells him he will take him, but he wants him to follow him through these, these stages of this journey. Um, two th one thing that I want to point out be before I put this aside. Um, remember at the opening, when Flannery O'Connor describes the park, she describes the park with a gate over it and two trees. Who's 
Who in the Bible has the name Enoch? We went through this once. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Do you remember, Tracy? Well, it's that, I mean, I, on the road, but Enoch? Right. So go ahead. You mean Damascus? I don't know where you are. No, no, not Damascus. He's like on a carriage or something. I don't know. I don't know. He was subsumed into heaven, right? Directly into heaven. No, I thought it was Enoch in the Old Testament. I don't know. Enoch is the founder of the first city. We've been here before. Enoch is the founder of the first city. This is really important. Flannery O'Connor knows this. She knows this well. Cain kills Abel and God exiles him. Enoch is the product of that, that relationship that Cain will have when he goes out of Eden. So the, it seems to me the only possible understanding we can have about Enoch is he's the founder of the first city, so he makes clear what happens when man attempts to live without God anymore. Because the, the city is an attempt for man to create his own world, to live independently, self, to be self-sufficient. This man's name is Enoch, and if you notice, the, the, the park is described with two trees. How telling is that? And it's the park. So in some ways, it's a parody of Eden and the park that was lost with the two trees. And I think she means for us to be aware of that. Okay, now hold on to that until we get to the end, because I want to read the end in a minute. But that's how she begins it, and then you know at the end, Enoch brings Hazel Weaver to the museum to look in this case to see this strange thing. Okay. In Revelation, the Turpins <coughs> arrive at a, at a doctor's office, and she begins to um, engage this woman that... O'Connor describes as being very pleasant, exchanging all these niceties, but buried in all of these niceties are these awful prejudices, particularly concerning blacks. And the, the pleasant woman has a daughter whose name is Mary Grace, who begins to take offense at Mrs. Turpin because of all of her remarks and her, I think, sort of seeming condescension that she seems to act as if she's better than other people while she's putting people down. That was another one I thought, loving a good thing too much. much. Wanting uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. She was loving a good thing too much. And um, at one point um, when, when Mrs. Turpin, I think, is um, complimenting herself at how good she is. I think at that point she's she's going on, thank God, thank Jesus, thank Jesus for how good you know, she feels blessed and she, and she credits Jesus for all of her blessing and goes, oh Jesus, and finally the girl has had enough and she takes the book that she's reading. Do you remember the title of the book? Human Development. Human Development. Human Development. She takes a book on human psychology and throws it at Mrs. Turpin and gives her a black eye and, and then she jumps on her, people come in and rescue her, she goes home with her husband and then she has this vision at the end and wonders, in, in fact she even has a quarrel with God. She says, why in the world, if this is, if this is a message sent to me, why would you have done this? Because she thinks of herself as being so good. In Greenleaf, the stories about Mrs. May this to me is one of the more powerful of her stories, and it's, it's 
I, I'm not sure that it gets as much credit as um, Revelation or part of the park, but Mrs. May is a very self-righteous woman who has done everything she can to, to make herself self-sufficient, to get on her own, to show how good she is. When she's around her friends, her friends have nothing but compliments to pay her. She, they all tell her what a good woman she is. Look, look at what she's done. She, she's a woman who'd say, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and look what I made of myself. I've yes, done all this good thing. She loves a good thing too much. <laughs> she is horrified by the Greenleys because they seem to be slovenly and not as careful. Ironically, when she goes over, she sees that they've made this wonderful business in milking cows and they put her work to shame because they've used technology when she wouldn't. She was just too proud. She's constantly making class judgments about the children to her favor and to the Greenleaf's disfavor. It's, it's one of the ways she has of convincing herself of how good she is. And it's interesting, every one of these women, Mrs. Turpin, does the same thing. And she's always making class judgments and putting herself above other people. She, she, you can see if somebody were to disagree with her, she would argue, but quite, she may say something nice, but in her mind she's convinced that she's so much better. And she has these thoughts about if, if God gave her a choice, one of them is God gave her a choice between being a nigger or a white trash, which would she choose? She says, I'd rather be a nigger. At least it would be me, black. That is, there's no reason for her to change. She's good as she is. If she did, it would just be color. Every one of her judgments is based on class differences. Everyone. Um, Mrs. May is the same way. I want to go back to what we, what we first touched on when we did Moby Dick. What we're seeing in these stories is what happens to a religion when it becomes a moral code. When it becomes a moral code, it becomes there's nothing else by which to judge people except their social standing. And if she, if she gives that any kind of religious identity, which she does, it will always be to her credit. Look at that. These people are like that. There's rich people who are white trash, you know. And she's always judging herself by the and judging her kids to her advantage. And and the story makes clear is she just is blind. Her kids are worse than the Greenleaf kids, clearly. And it, it's interesting. I, I don't know that there's nothing in the story that says this, but it, it's hinted at that the Greenleaf kids are Catholic. The father was in war, he married somebody in France, it's a Catholic country, and they go to a convent school. Right. And they're all well-mannered. And her description of them, apart from Mrs. Turpin, is they had this, what was the word, Im impartial, was an impartial manner, that, that there wasn't a sense of favoring, that they just, everything about the whole family shows that they're completely free of the striving that characterizes her life. A good man of, is hard to find um, is the story about the grandmother and her son Bailey and their children. They take off for this trip. It's all manipulated by the grandmother. The, he wanted to go to Florida, she wants to go to Tennessee, and she, she keeps manipulating, managing things so that she can get her way. She conceals the cat. At one point, this shouldn't be in the car, at one point she's reminded of this plantation that she saw when she was young and convinces her son to turn around and go back, and then she has this horrible thought and we learn in a moment that the horrible thought was that she's in the wrong state. <laughs> God. But once she realizes that she lurches and the cat jumps out and jumps on Bailey, and you know what happens, the car is overturned and they end up in a ditch. Everything that she does is for herself and it leads to a disaster. 
Okay? Now, in every one of these stories, there are stories largely about women, very self-righteous, convinced that they're right, um, are underhanded in what they do. These women writers that we're reading don't have... I mean, if, if writers write about what they know, these are two women writers who are... <laughs> Um, who are giving us a, a very modern, yeah, scary, is, that's an understatement, um, view. They're there in a ditch and can't get out, they're all okay, but this car approaches and it turns out to be the misfit that she's read about in the morning paper and his two companions, okay? Now let me quickly go back. I want to read from the endings of each one of them. And I'm going to have to do this quickly because we've got... Okay, here, before we start, to, to just try to be as clear as I can on this. Flanner O'Connor thought that sentimental literature was dishonest. And she thought it was dishonest because she thought it was too innocent. One of the qualities that characterizes every one of these women is their innocence. They just don't have any sense that what they're doing is wrong, ever. Um, that was true of Eudora Welty's characters, it's true here. Mrs. May, very self-righteous, um, She's not a, she doesn't seem to be aware that there are things in her character that are not good. Same true for Mrs. Turpin. And Flannery O'Connor thought that the, one of the greatest harms in literature was sentiment, dan dangers to literature was its sentimentality. That it would sentimentalize things, that it wasn't honest enough about real things. She's Catholic. She understands that, that her way of putting this is that the world is under construction. That's her phrase. The world is under construction. Grace is constantly being offered. The question is whether people have the humility to receive it. She saw violence as an occasion for grace. She understood that violence has a way of very often returning people to their better selves because sometimes they got so caught up in believing they were so good that they didn't see how bad they were becoming. So a violent occasion very often returns them to themselves, or can. Now the question is, does it in these stories? Because I want to look at one, each one of these stories. So for her, violence is an occasion for grace, that it's very often necessary because people go on comfortably doing what they think is okay, when as a matter of fact it's not. And then something happens to throw things off. And the question is, do they go on? Do they learn from them? Is there a turn? Is there a peripatia? Or do they go on in the same way, without, without really seeing who they are? Um, take a look at Heart of the Park. <clears throat> he brings um, Hazel to the museum at the top of page 9. He says, he pointed down through the trees, museum, he said. The strange word made him shiver. There it is, the word that the mere sound of a word can send chills through us. The, the words have this magic, sometimes can have this magical power to make us feel things that otherwise we wouldn't feel. He takes him into this open area and takes him to this lock cage and then asks him to look into it. And the woman, meanwhile, with her um, child is following them middle of the page. Enoch looked at Hazel Weaver to see if he was smelling the undersmell. He looked like he was. Enoch's blood 
began beating again, and the sound was near this time like the drums had moved up about a quarter of a mile. He gripped Hayes's arm and tiptoed through the hall to another back door at the end. He cracked it a little and inserted his head, then in a second he drew it out and crooked his finger in a gesture for Hayes to follow him. They went into another hall like the last one, but running crosswise. It's in that front door, or in that first door yonder, Enoch said in a small voice. They went into a dark room full of glass cases. The glass cases covered the walls, and there were three coffin-like ones in the middle of the floor. Go down. Come on, Enoch whispered. The drum noises in his blood were getting closer. Now hold on just for a second. One of the interesting things about this as a modern work is this. We all know from Flannery O'Connor's description that Enoch does this almost daily. And he does it in the form of a ritual. Okay? A ritual. It almost has a religious character. He has to do this. He's expecting a sign. If you take out the Mass, if you take out a ritual taking us to God, what can replace it? In the modern world, and I'm, I'm going I'm to, I hope this isn't too glib, in the modern world I'm going to say, what replaces it are habits. We have to set up things so that we do certain things every day. We go through the same things. If anything throws us off on those things, we can get really upset. It can be coffee or paper or whoever, no, I mean, um, if something, th- like five children visiting, or <laughs> <laughs> that would do it. If, if things throw off, it's not an easy thing to do because we get set in our way. Wait, I'm really serious. Because habits can sometimes take a ritualistic form. We, we, we give, we impart too much importance, we give, we vest too much importance in them. Like routines, is that what you're Yes, yeah. Everything he does has the nature of a ritual, wouldn't you say? I mean, he has to, he has to go through this a certain way. And he keeps looking for a sign. Now think about the prophetic nature of this. This is not a Christian world. It's a world in lieu of a sacramental world. While he's going through this ritual, he does it expecting a sign, and he's done it with a sense that somebody will be called out to receive it, and it has to be the right person. Everything about it has the, has the rubric of Christian rites of initiation, sacrament, you name it, whatever it happens to be. So what's, what's interesting is that take Christ and the rituals out, or God out, what you've got is man for some reason that he doesn't seem to see, wanting to substitute his own. With this sense that something awful is going to happen. Some, I mean awful not in catastrophic, but full of awe. Full of a profound feeling of awe. So he's done this, and I, if, we, if we don't see that, I think we're missing it, because she has taken us through this thing, and now, now we're coming to the end of it. What has this all been for? Come on, Enoch whispered, the drum noises in his blood were getting... You can see, right? I mean, his blood is throbbing. Why? Because he's about to enter into a mystery. And he wants to share this mystery with somebody else. I hope it's clear how much that's a parody when you have sponsors wanting to get an initiate to come in or being with them and the excitement you feel or, you know, the importance you give those things. He stood looking down with his neck thrust forward and his hands clutched together. Hazel Weaver moved up beside him. The two of them stood there, Enoch rigid and Hazel Weaver bent slightly forward. There were three bowls in a row of blunt weapons and a man in the case. It was the man Enoch was looking for. He was about three feet long, 
He was naked and dried yellow color and his eyes were squinched shut as if a giant block of steel were falling down on top of him. See there, see there, see, see that there, <laughs> that there, notice Elix said in a church whisper, pointing to a typewritten card of the man's foot, it says he was once as tall as us. Some Arabs did it to him in six months. He turned his head consciously to see Hazel Weaver. All he could tell was Hazel Weaver's eyes were on, were on the shunk, on the shrunken man. He was bent forward so that his face was reflected in the glass top of the case. The reflection was pale and the eyes were like two clean bullet holes, Enoch waited rigid. He heard footsteps in the hall. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, he prayed. Let him hurry up and do whatever he's going to do. The footsteps came in the door. It's the woman now. She comes. Notice what it says. She stopped on the other side of the case and looked down into it, and the reflection of her face appeared grinning on the glass over Hazel Weaver's. She snickered and put two fingers in her. It goes on. Um, Hazel runs off, and Enoch goes after him, and he's... He's so overwhelmed by the experience that Hazel, to defend himself, has to run off and push him down and then throws a stone at him, and it ends with blood coming out of him. He sat straight up, frozen skinned, and put his finger in it. Very faintly, he could hear his blood beating, his secret blood in the center of the city. Turn to um, Greenleaf, or Revelation. Sorry, Revelation. Mary Grace throws the book and says to Mrs. Turban, go back to hell, you old warthog. Remember she goes home overwhelmed at the thought that somebody would say that to her because she thinks of herself as being this really good woman. And then she starts arguing with God at the top of 19, exactly how am I like them? She jabbed the stream of water. There was plenty of trash there. It didn't have to be me. If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then, she railed. You could have made me trash or a nigger. Trash is what you want. Why didn't you make me trash? She shook her. She's really angry at God. Um, go down. Or you could have made me a nigger. It's too late for me to be a nigger, she said with deep sarcasm. But I could act like one. Lay down in the middle of the road and stop traveling. <laughs> Roll on the ground. Um, in the deepening light, everything taking on a mysterious hue. I don't know if you noticed this, but in every one of these stories, very often when the sun comes, it's like an image of grace being offered in the background. It, it doesn't relate to, it doesn't affect her, except, you know, very often when the sun is over the field, she feels like it's encroaching on her property, the way she does green leaf. So very often the sun or light or moments of illumination give hints that something's being offered, and very often the characters are not aware of it. Um, go on, she called, call me a hog, call me a hog again from hell, call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. There'll still be a top and bottom. That is, no matter how, there's always going to be classes. So you can take the top rail and put it in the bottom. And the bottom but there are always going to be classes. And she's always seen herself well on her way up. A final surge of fury shook her, and she roared, Who do you think you are? The color of everything, field and crimson sky, burned for a moment with a transparent intensity. The question carried over the pasture and across the highway, and caught and returned to her clearly like an answer from beyond the wood. Is everybody following that? The echo comes back, probably with a different emphasis. Who do you think you are? <laughs> I think it's supposed to. Um, 
And it's at that point that she has that revelation. Um, Mrs. Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed on the highway, all her muscles rigid. Um, until five or six minutes, the truck reappeared. Then like a monumental statue coming in life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as if through the very heart of mystery down into the pig parlor at the Hogs. Um, it's a profound moment. Go down a few lines. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hand from the side of the pen in a gesture erratic and profound. Go down. She has this vision of people marching into heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives and hands bands of black niggers in white robes battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. Bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized as once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Um, go down to the very end of the uh, woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and sh shouting hallelujah. Um, I'm not gonna read this, I'm just gonna, um, in the Greenleaf story, you know that she takes Greenleaf to the field to shoot the bull, and he chases him off into the wood to do it. And she wakes and leans on the car and falls asleep for a second and then comes to herself. And she sees this bull appear and start to charge her. And, and I think for a moment she doesn't know what to make of it until finally the bull comes right at her and gores her. On the very last page on page 16, she stared at the violent black streak bounding forward toward her as if she had no sense of distance, as if she could not decide at once what his intention was, and the bull had buried his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover before her expression changed. The myth behind this is from Ovid. I brought a copy, but um, I'll ask you later if you want a copy. I'll run it off if you do. Of um, Zeus taking the form of a bull and um, kidnapping Europa and ravishing her. Catherine Ann Porter, like Eudora Welty and others, had, I mean, they were full of these myths. So there's a mythic quality to all these stories. But here there's that ancient myth of Zeus, God, taking on the form of a bull and ravishing a woman. So she, what she's done is taken that myth, but, but changed it in contemporary terms so that a bull is has gouged this woman who has who's wanted to kill it for all the wrong reasons. And now it's described as um, buried his head in her lap like a wild tormented lover before the expression changed. One of the horns sank until it pierced her heart and the other curved round her side and held her in an unbreakable, like a lover holding a ravished woman. Um, Greenleaf comes up and shoots him she did not hear the shots, but she felt the quake in the huge body as it sank, pulling her forward on its head, so that she seen when Mr. Greenleaf reached her 
to be bent over whispering some last discovering into the animal's ear. What is she whispering in his ear? Hold off on that. The, the last one. Um, good man is hard to find. You know that, the, that when the misfit comes, he tells one of his henchmen to take the father and son into the woods and they hear this fire. The wife goes limp. So does um, the grandmother. And it's during this exchange where she keeps, she keeps saying to him, you are a good man. You don't have to do this. You are a good man. I can see goodness in you. Um, you're like good country people. And the misfit gets angrier and angrier and angrier at her. Um, she keeps pleading that he turn to Christ, actually urges him to pray that that will take care of things. Um, she asks him earlier what he did to deserve punishment, and he says he can't even remember. Um, a couple of thoughts here before we finish this. It seems to me that in some ways the misfit, I want to hold off on something because I want to put the question to you, but in, in some ways the misfit is an image of modern man. He was told when he had a psychiatric evaluation, when he was papers were being written on, that he killed his father. That was his understanding. Clearly he's get a Freudian account that he's not responsible for what he did. This is a part of his determined character like everything that Freud would say, that what you're doing is acting out of these deterministic impulses. And, and at some point, um, he, he doesn't have any sense of what he did. He can't recollect because for him, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. If you're a product of the forces that made you up, why do you even have to pay, take any account of them? I mean, that's, that's really partly behind the modern mind. If you're a product of all these forces, what does it matter? Why remember any of them? And more importantly, why are you punished? What they go on to make clear, and I, I think there's a pretty serious cri criticism of the modern world. Um, how many, if, if, here, let me put it differently. If the modern world has lost the sense of the fall, I want to put this as starkly as I can. If the, if the modern world has lost the sense of the fall and the fact that we won't get things right until we get things right with God because the original sin was against Him, that we will never be able to do with each other what we've been called to do till we get right with Him. If that's true, um, can the modern world ever get right on a case of justice? Will they ever be able to see into the soul of a man to determine what's just? Or, or how many cases that attempt to bring justice to a person, in some sense, will be a travesty? Without bringing God into the picture, will we ever be able to get things straight when we're trying to be just with one another, the way we're called to with Christ? The, the misfit says, top of 11, Jesus thrown everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he didn't commit any crime, and they could... They could prove I had committed one because they had the papers on me. He has no idea what they're talking about. How well do we really under... If take Christ out of the picture, how well do we understand... If people are born and raised a certain way... I ask this with sound and the fury. If they're raised a certain way and they ended up doing something, you can't discount their upbringing, the child, the child is the father, you can't discount it. How do we, how do we calculate... How do we figure that in to any account of justice that we bring to somebody. How many times will we do a travesty in, in our dealings with justice just as we did with Christ? 
There's something wrong with us. In every one of these stories, what's at the heart of them is very few of these people acknowledge that they're in a fallen world. And since they don't, and they don't see themselves as a part of a fall, how can anything they do be in accord with the justice that Christ called us to or the love? So here, with the grandmother and the misfit, we've got a grandmother who thinks she knows everything and called Jesus and what would be right and wrong. He's saying, um, what happened to Christ happened with me, except he was innocent. They never showed me my papers. That's why I signed myself. Now he goes on. Then you know what, what you've done, and you can hold up the crime to the punishment, see do they match, and in the end you'll have something to prove you ain't been treated right. I mean, it's really raising serious questions about the way we apply justice in anything we do. I call myself the misfit, he said, because I can't make what I've done wrong fit what all I've gone through in punishment. I think you all know that if you watch... The, the recidivism rate in prisons is horrific. Mm-hmm. When people go into prison, there was a wonderful movie I saw last week called um, The Shotmaker or something like that about a guy who was from a relatively minor crime put in prison and the, the, what happened to him is when you get into that prison system, it's just an inhuman, barbaric animal system. What's it going to do to a human being? If that's a punishment, how fair is it? I mean, I, I, I myself, I, this is me now, I'm, I'm a, I don't want to see the prison system taken away. We have to do something. But if we look at what we're doing and say this is the way we uphold justice, Flannery O'Connor is really calling it to question here. Um, he then asks that the, the mother and the baby and the kids, the brother and sister, be taken their shot. When the grandmother hears that shot, she practically collapses. Um, and she sees the misfit practically cry, that he seems broken by the experience at the bottom of 11. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if it were going to cry, and she murmured, why, you're one of my babies, you're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. It's when she says that that he can't restrain himself any longer. You're one of my own. You're one of my own children. The other men come back, and the misfit tells him to drag all the bodies into the wood. And he says at the end, she would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. It's no real pleasure in life. He somehow bears this when the other men just... Now... We don't have, I want to just take one of these stories. When we meet again next week, I'd like to take up the other. Let me just stay with with a good man, it's hard to find. Is she saved at the end or not? I've read criticisms of it, and there are some people that think that at the end when she says, why, you're one of mine, that she's saved. That this ridiculous person who thinks she's been so good, who's led her and her children into this predicament, by everything stupid that she does, um, some people say, in this moment when she says, why, you're one of mine, um, that she say, now, that so enrages him that at that moment he just shoots her and says at the end, she would have been better if she'd been, there'd been somebody there to shoot her every day of her life. But mm-hmm. is she saved or not? She reached out to touch him. And that, that's a huge thing because before he was... He was an untouchable, you know, 
a deplorable. And so when she makes that gesture to reach out and touch, I think that that, that is, that in, in God's mercy, I think that that would save her. See, I read it entirely different. <laughs> I read it almost as she wasn't saying, she wasn't sitting there saying you're one of my, you know, you're one of my children in a loving way. It was almost in shock and awe of almost a look what I've created. You know, you see this bad thing over there and it's just bad. And then when it gets close, you realize, oh crap, I created it. Okay. okay. So, so, I mean, that, that's how I read it. Now, you could be right. I'm just saying that that's how, when, when I read it, that's how I saw it, is that she had created this, not maybe not mm -hmm. literally, but... Well, I mean, the, the one, one way to see that then is if, if up to this point she's been a woman who's hidden behind her innocence, which we've been seeing again and again, that she's just not aware of how much the fall is present in her. She's like Turpin and um, Mrs. May and um, who am I missing? But anyway, that in her innocence she doesn't see what she's done, even though what's happening is the result of her own actions. So when she says that, is she, is she broken through her innocence? So in that moment, she sees herself and is saved? Or is she still saying this in innocence? And so going to her death, still without fully seeing herself. Carl? I didn't get the impression that she was doing this as a genuine I thought she was still trying to save her bacon. Seriously, <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was pleading with him. There's a compassionate response. <laughs> I, I didn't believe her. Yeah. Well, make sense of the ending. What's happening then? What causes him to do that? He didn't believe her either. Not only did he not believe her, he was insulted, I think. Yeah. By her so, okay, the two choices are either, because up to this point, she has no sense, the Jesus stuff that we've been seeing in these characters, she has no sense of her own fall. She's just innocent in everything she does. So at this point, she either continues to be innocent um, or she sees, and, um, and you're saying that the misfit believes that she doesn't see that she's still as innocent and so in fury kills her? How are you, how are you putting it, Doc? What do you see? What's happening here? I think the misfit is insulted when he sees this woman who is manipulative um, and doesn't see herself at all and when she says, and he's, he's sort of almost talking to himself when he's talking about all of these things that happened and he doesn't know, you know, he wasn't there when Jesus was there, and he doesn't know whether he did raise people from the dead or didn't raise people from the dead, and it would make a difference if he knew. And But he's mostly talking to himself, I think. He's not, I don't think he's really talking to her very much. He blamed her for him having to kill the other people, too. Where do you see that? She said she wait, where do you see that? Wait, hold on. Just a, when he first tells the father and the son to go into the woods, he does it because he wants their shirt. He's going to kill them all anyway because he says it would have been better if you'd not said that because 
he knows that they know who he is and he doesn't want that to get out. He's going to get new clothes. Mm -hmm. but, but they only know who he is because the grandmother said she recognized him right. and said who he was. Right. If, if is that what not, you mean? Yeah. The, the, uh, the misfit, I think he even says that, you know, if it weren't for you identifying me, you know, maybe everyone could have gone free. Yeah. I, I think, I kind of feel, this is terrible to say, because it's a horrible story, and I read it right before I went to sleep. Actually, I think it's a good... At that moment, I feel sorry for the misfit, because I think she's convinced him that there is goodness in the world, but he has been so bad that he has to continue to be bad. And the, the reason I say that is because when the other guys start to make fun of that, he will not allow that. Yeah. He respected her. Mm. So I think that she changed him at that moment. But he couldn't change because of the badness he had always done. Remember that when it's, it, this, is, this is really a complicated moment, I think, because there's so much there's so much denial in her. She just hides behind this innocent her. She has no sense. There's nothing that she does in the story that gives her that gives us any sense that she carries her fall. But when she sees him cry or get tender, she saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry. It's interesting. Why you're one of my babies? It's interesting how we understand that line. Either she's seeing a sympathy in him and so misreading him to see that he's good and so like her, i.e. that he's as innocent as she is, that he's tender and good, and because that outrages him, because he knows, I mean, the, the interesting thing he says, it's, it's in this story or the other one, he said, it, there's only two things to do, either follow Christ or give up everything, because Christ changed everything. And I think what he's seen in the, in the grandmother is this innocence that is is just so lacking in honesty about herself and the world. So when she when he when he starts to look sad and she says, "Why well, you're one of my babies," you're the question is, is she turning that to make it fit her because she wants everything to be nice, which outrages him, or is she changed? Because the the the, the focus here is in the relationship between those and what happens in this moment. Is she changed? Is he? What happens in this moment? Is, is it a moment of grace? And, and it, I think it's right. I mean, um, at the very end, even then he's upset at having to kill the people. And then when, the, when Bobby Lee makes a smart remark, the Mifsa said, it's no real pleasure in life. And clearly Christ makes that harder for him because he knows that Christ was innocent when he died. So it's a terribly seems to be a terribly complicated moment um, what happens here, how we understand grace. Let's leave it here and we'll pick it up again when we meet next. What I'd like to do next week because we've only got two stories is come back to this one and the other three to see what you guys make of Mrs. May at the end when she's gored, Mrs. Turbot at the end with her revelation and um, Enoch with the shrunking man. What... What do we, how are we to understand that image of the shrunken man? You guys have a good week. Um,
my suggestion is that you read Flanner and Connor every night before bedtime. <laughs> my shrunken man story was in Kazakhstan, and they took me to a museum and they showed me these dioramas, okay? And with little, little, you know, these Kazakhs were dressed up in, in these seals, and I said to the the fellow who was leading leading me around, but they let me touch Genghis Khan's bow and arrow, and his, his, uh, took me to the museum, opened up the case, and you know, I was able to, to look at and touch what, whatever Genghis Khan wore. And was were coming out though, and I said, I now know why there are no small, no sh short, short uh, people, nor sh no short Kazakhs in Kazakhstan anymore. And the lady said, why? And I said, well, the snow is this high. And it was, we, it was winter, and it was, the snow outside was terrible. And they, they all went, they went laughing, but the one guy ran up ahead, and as we were exiting the museum, they, people all came out and they were clapping, and they had heard this guy related the story. And the lady in the front window came running up to me, and, and my translator said to me, but she was doing this, and she was pointing at me, and she says, he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that was true. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>